This is Life of an Architect, a podcast dedicated to all things architecture with a little bit of life thrown in for balance. There is a process when working on a residential project when you start studying what the project will actually look like in terms of elevations, exterior materials, interior finishes, specialty lighting, cabinetry, plumbing fixtures, and on and on and on. This phase of the work is widely referred to as design development, and that will be the focus of our conversation today. Welcome to episode 107, Residential Architecture 101, Design Development. Today's episode is generously brought to you with support from Clopay Corporation, the largest manufacturer and marketer of garage doors and rolling steel doors in North America. Hi everyone, I'm Bob Borson. And I'm Andrew Hawkins. And today, Andrew and I are going to talk about design development, specifically focused on residential projects. We're going to say right now, out of the gate, there's a big difference between residential and commercial work when it comes to what happens and when, who is involved in when, what level of documentation is created, and so on and so forth. When I was putting my notes together, I kept listing stuff, and I went, well, this is the whole episode. <laughs> like, if I, just, if I just tell you what we're going to be talking about, I'm basically telling you the episode. That's done. Yeah, that's funny. Yeah. So we did break it out into four major categories. But I think we should start right out of the gate, hot, with what is design development? I actually should have said this first. This is actually the second entry in this series, because we got so many people that were asking questions about residentially focused topics. We did one back in March of this year on schematic design. Mm-hmm. So this one's going to be on design development. Yeah, sure. And it stands to reason that there's going to be one on construction documents eventually. Yeah, I would think. Yeah, and then probably, I don't know if we'll do one dedicated to just bidding and negotiation, but it's possible. It's possible. And then construction administration. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I'm going to cover it all, man. We've kind of got these two things going now, at least recently, the, the academic series and the residential series. So working through this. Yeah. Well, hopefully this will check the box and whether we decide to continue to focus on those specific silos will remain to be seen. We're pretty flexible. Go with the flow. Yeah, that's how we work. That's what we are. Yeah. Okay. So let's get into Roman numeral one or letter A or however you want to put it. The first topic, right? Sure. What is design development? So design development is the second major phase of work in a residential project following schematic design, which we just got through talking about. Assuming that you don't identify programming as its own phase, which I don't. And that's one of the differences between commercial work and residential work because there could be all sorts of data gathering moments in commercial work that residential really doesn't have to deal with, at least not to yeah. the same kind of breadth that commercial projects deal with. Yeah, for sure. Commercial programming, there's all kinds of people you can bring in and a lot of different variables and factors, but in a residential, it's a fairly succinct, though it varies from project to project, it's still a lot of the same parts and programs. So. Yeah, I think that's a good distinction. But we're not focusing on schematic design because we did that. So I thought if I'm going to define design development, there's two ways. We can simply look at the typical proposal language that I use, as well as the AIA B101 contract between owner and architect. Which one do you want to start with, mine or AIA? (laughs) Let's start with AIA. Let's start with the the professionals first. Uh, I take offense to that, but okay. (laughs) 
here we go. The, the AI B101, which is basically the contract between owner and the architect. And this is in section 3.3.1. It says, based on the owner's approval of the schematic design documents and on the owner's authorization of any adjustments in the project requirements and the budget for the cost of work, the architect shall prepare design development documents for the owner's approval. All right, that's a lot of legal talk, but moving on. For sure. The design development document shall illustrate and describe the development of the approved schematic design documents and shall consist of drawings and other documents, including plans, sections, elevations, typical construction details, and diagrammatic layouts of the building systems to fix and describe the size and character of the project as to the architectural, structural, mechanical, and electrical systems and other appropriate elements. The design development document shall also include outline specifications that identify major materials and systems and establish, in general, their quality levels. That's not even close to what happens in residential work. Yeah, that sounds very commercial-oriented, quite honestly. It is. It is. From that contract, that's what I would expect. Yeah. I would have tried to look to see what they have in a small project, contracts, or some of the other contracts. Yes. Well, the thing, I felt like doing it, but I didn't do it. Could they use the word documents more often? Like, yeah, right, yeah. Documents to document the documentation. Of the documents, yeah. We'll use documents, said documents. So there's a lot of it. Yeah. So, I mean, at least it didn't refer to section 3.3.3.2.1 and section 4.4.5.5. You know, at least it didn't do that, but that's a lot to wade through. It is a lot. That's why I was going to start with it. I'm assuming yours is a little bit more condensed, and actually, I think mine might be even more succinct, but go for it. One, what, because I'm wordy? Is that what you're saying? No, no, no. Oh, mine's different? <laughs> no. My definition that I just thought of is like one sentence. And so... Okay, let's do that. Yours is short. Let's do it. <laughs> let's set the bar. Well, I think design development is the phase in which most, if not all, design decisions are finalized. Yeah, it's not bad. To me, that's what happens in that phase. There's no more guesswork at least very limited at that point as far as the design goes. And not the technical stuff, but the design of all those elements is pretty much complete Yeah, at the end of this phase. Yeah, okay, I buy it. Mine is definitely not that succinct, mm -hmm. but it's more user-friendly. How about that? Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's not difficult based on that last definition, though. <laughs> I mean, come on, right? <laughs> yeah. So mine says, Based upon the approved schematic design package, Boca Powell will create design development drawings and other documents to fix and describe the size and character of the home's building exterior and interior finish out. Deliverables will include quarter inch scale hardline floor plans, quarter inch scale exterior and interior elevations. We will meet with the clients through regularly scheduled meetings to present and review the design development concepts. Meetings required during the design development phase will occur virtually, or with prior arrangements at predetermined locations, including the current home of the client, the project site, or Boca Powell's Dallas office. We will make revisions to the designs presented in an iterative process as feedback is gathered, and we will seek approval from the client prior to proceeding. So it goes on for a bit, but it talks about this is what problems we're solving. This is how we're going to present that information to you. This is where we'll meet. This is the frequency at which we will meet. And this is the yeah. approvals that we will get from you. So. Yeah. You got a little bit of deliverable in there, a little meeting limitation. Yeah. I mean, you're setting some parameters, I think, that are a little more well-defined. Yeah. 
And you know, it's funny when you said 3.3.1.3.a.b.b.i.i, you know, that kind of thing. Uh It makes me think of every now and then when we get into the system, you know, and you see concept design 01, concept design 01 underscore final, concept design 01 underscore final underscore this time I really mean it underscore, you know, it just kind of keeps going. Yeah, like the file systems. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's the one that we generally use. And I think everybody pretty much understands it. Now, sometimes based on the scope of the work, we might actually change some of that language a little bit. And clearly, we added a phrase in there about meeting virtually. And that's true for a couple reasons. It's funny, when I did those projects out of state, I don't know, five years ago. You were flying there all the time and stuff. I was flying there. I was, I was going to places once a month. And what yeah. was funny, I don't know how to take this. I'm going to take it as a good way. Like just because we're so cost effective here in Dallas, I'll say Texas that these projects I was doing out in California, it still was less to hire me and pay for me to fly out there every four to six weeks than it was to pay the hourly rate of some of the California architects. And I thought, man, I should move to California. But, of course, cost of living out there is way higher. Than yeah, and there's probably <laughs> a lot of competition as well. Not that you could win, but I'm just saying, yeah, that is strange, though, that it's still cheaper to, to do that. Yeah, so I'd fly out. And that's happened in a couple of different jobs, you know, because I do, it's funny, I do more work out of state than I do in my town. Mm. So we have lines in there that kind of ebb and flow and they evolve over time. And sometimes we might just change the scale of drawings. But for those of you that have really dialed into this, when we talked about schematic design, a lot of times we present in sketch format or something loose. And we made the decision to do that because when we present CAD files to people, printed out CAD files, it felt complete. And we found that sometimes people were hesitant to make changes because they felt like it was a massive step in the wrong direction. So, And that, that is not the case for commercial work. <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely not. They're like, can you get it done faster? Yeah, and they don't care. It doesn't seem permanent. It still seems just as flexible. I think it's interesting to me, the, the really interesting part of all that is that you called out a scale of work. Yeah. Quarter-inch scale stuff. I think that that's really interesting to me. I never would describe it like that in any of my contracts or agreements. So I think that's pretty interesting. You know, I think about it every now and then that it's not really necessary, but it suggests a level of detail is going to exist. Like on some of our commercial projects, exterior elevations might be at eighth inch scale because the building's so big. If I drew some of these residential projects at an eighth inch scale, you couldn't hardly see anything. I mean, it's just not big enough. Yeah. You know, and we talk about with all the drawings that we create, the level of information you're trying to provide normally has some relationship to the scale at which it is presented. So you can look at it and go, plans are typically one scale, elevations at a scale, wall sections at a general scale, like three quarters of an inch equals a foot. In large details, one and a half inch. These are kind of accepted norms yeah, yeah, in our yeah. profession, right? Sure, yeah. So I don't know that I need to put it in because I'm not so sure that most of the people reading this care not because they're indifferent because they just they don't know like they wouldn't think one was better than another well and that that's what was surprising to me is because to you yes a quarter inch infers some set of parameters about what's going to be able to be represented but to someone like a residential client they probably don't know something at a quarter inch scale they don't know what that means yeah they don't know what level of detail that represents but in your mind it does that's why i thought it was kind of interesting yeah you know the other thing that i thought was that's a lot different in residential projects than commercial is we don't put a schedule in here. Yeah. I don't say, hey, this will last. A lot of people do this. They'll say, 
hey, for design development, you get X number of meetings. This phase or, lasts this long, this many weeks, and yes. comprised of X number of meetings and X number of revisions or whatever. We rarely do that on residential work. Rarely. Hmm, yeah. It's interesting because the reasons I don't put a schedule to it are probably not what most people who don't know would think. It's not because hmm. I don't care or the process happens so fast that why should I? It's because <laughs> residential clients, their life, life changes for them. Yeah. It's such regularity that they might say, hey, we're supposed to meet, but my kid has to go get braces and I need to push this off. And then, you know, I'm supposed to be out of town next week and yeah. like whatever. Life. They fell at the soccer game and broke their arm. And now we've got, you know. Yeah. They just don't want to mess with it. Or we'll have projects depending on the time of year. We'll go on extended to like, oh, we hit the holiday season and nobody wants to mess with this during the holiday. See you in two months. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing to me, I think about that is the reason that I would say for those limitations about time or meetings and stuff is when it's not being charged hourly because you guys charge hourly as opposed to some kind of flat fee. Like if I had X number of dollars, I knew that was associated with that, then I would probably be more restrictive if that makes sense. No, totally does. So that's probably another reason to me why you, even in your residential work that you're charging by the hour. So it doesn't really matter how long it takes. It takes what it takes. But if I was doing residential work and charging by a fixed fee, then, yeah. Well, I'll let me blow your mind. Okay. We don't charge just hourly. Oh, really? I would say the the two biggest projects I have going right now are both percentage cost of construction. Ah, uh, okay. And I think part of the reason that's where my brain goes is because when I started doing residential work, which would be somewhere on the neighborhood of 20 years ago, the firm that I started at, they didn't limit that sort of thing. They're mm -hmm. like, you know what? We're going to do what it needs to take to make you happy to move forward. And I go, you know what? I believe that in all things in life. Sure. But can you get burned by it? Oh, for sure. For sure. But I can count on probably less than two hands, maybe only on one hand, the number of times I actually have been burned from a residential standpoint on mm. somebody just making 10,000 changes and modifications and moving forward. I think that that's more a reflection of a communication issue than anything else. Meaning if somebody says, I want A, B, C, D, E, and then I decide that not eh, really B, C, D, E, and J are what you need. And I don't communicate that well. And then we get in the meeting and they're like, no, I asked for this. And I go, okay. And then I come back and I give them A, B, F, M, and L. How many times is this is because. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not able to communicate or I can't receive the information that the owner is giving me. And it takes us five times to get through the process because they're not getting what they're asking for, or I'm not explaining why what they're getting isn't what they asked for. Yeah, I can understand that. I, mean, I can see it as a communication problem for sure. And to me, there's different, different pitfalls at different phases. In schematic, I never really cared about how many iterations that there was, but the further along you get in the project, when those changes and iterations start to be made to me that it becomes more impactful. Yeah, if we got to change things a bunch of times in schematic and we kind of go back and forth, that's okay. But the further we move in, you know, the client starts changing things more and more and we have communication problems, then it hurts a little bit more, I think. Well, one thing I don't have is a silo because I agree with that. And the one thing I didn't put in here, and maybe I should have, or maybe I just talk about it now, but I think I'd just rather skip over it, just like touch on it real quickly. <laughs> sure. Is the financial part of it. Hmm. And when we charge a percentage of the cost of construction, one of the things that we grapple with, with some regularity, especially now, 
residential home costs right now are bananas. Yeah, everything is bananas. <laughs> yeah, and so people will come in, they'll say, I want to spend X. And at some point I'll say, yes, this is doable. Or I'll go, I think it's doable. We don't do cost estimating mm -hmm. for just the very fact that what it costs today isn't going to be what it costs in four months. And yeah. since I don't control the timeline, it might take me two months to get to a set that I can get priced, mm -hmm. even if it's preliminarily, or it could take eight months. I don't know. Mm -hmm. So we tell people we don't do cost estimating. We're okay at it. Like, I don't say that I'm pretty good at it. We can keep it in the ballpark, hopefully, but that sort of depends on you and how long you take for us to fit into that ballpark. <laughs> yeah. Or I'll also tell them along the way, go, uh, we're creeping out of budget. Like, I'm starting to have some concerns over this because mm. normally the processes, the owners will say, let's do it exactly the way I want it and then see what happens. That sort of thing. Gotcha. But with current pricing, we're getting numbers that are 50, 60% more than what they should be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They look at me like, what's wrong with you? And I go, I don't know what to tell you. I mean, a lot probably, but specific to this, yeah. I don't know what to tell you. And it feels terrible. Yeah. Specifically related to the cost, I've got no control. And yeah, I, it's so unpredictable. I wouldn't even, I don't even want to try. Here's that challenge. So let's say that Andrew Hawkins hires me to do a house and he goes, I've got a $2 million budget. And I go, all right, well, we charge this percentage of the cost of construction. Sure. And we go through this process and halfway through or at various stages, I tell you, hey, man. The boat has left the $2 million harbor. Mm -hmm. And they're like, keep going. Well, at some point, since my fee is based upon the cost of construction, you have to say, look, I'm going to start charging more because we're beyond that number. But that's mm -hmm. just me licking my finger and sticking it in the air. So we started to get more towards, hey, let's get a contractor on board. By the end of design development, they become a team member, a value-added team member. They can start being part of the conversation about budgeting. Yeah, yeah, that's good. And allows us to reset where we're at. Sure, sure, that's good. Well, lately, part of the pricing problem is we can't get contractors at all to look at the project. And when we can, they're so busy. Like one project, it took almost two months to get a price from him. That's ridiculous. It was ridiculous. So, More from Life of an Architect in just a moment. Andrew and I are visiting with Megan Joseph, a Southeast architectural product representative for Clopay Corporation, the largest manufacturer and marketer of garage doors and rolling steel doors in North America. Megan develops building solutions for overhead door applications in both commercial and residential building sectors. And with more than 15 years of experience in the construction industry, Megan relies on her expertise to support architectural and engineering firms and meeting the unique design and specification demands of their projects. Hi, Megan. How are you? Hi, I'm good. How are you guys? Good. Thanks for joining us. Good, good. Where are you coming from? Where are you at tonight? I am kind of in between Sarasota and St. Petersburg, Florida. So I'm on the Gulf Coast of Florida. Nice. How's the weather there right now? I was like, it's hot there too? You know, it's kind of hot everywhere in the summer, but it is a little bit more so maybe on the side, but we get the ocean breeze, so it's not too bad. No, that's nice. It's a beautiful area. Well, I wanted to take this opportunity and time that we have with you to talk about a resource that's available to architects that they might not know about, and that is the Architect Portal. Can you share with us what that is? Sure. So the Architect Portal is a website that gives architects and engineers tools that they need to specify the right sectional or rolling steel garage door. All projects are pretty unique, and I think that 
it becomes more tasking than originally thought before they get onto some web pages. I've worked for other companies that don't have such an interactive website. Mm -hmm. So I think it's a great tool for them. And then also we just have an expansive and dedicated architectural support team as well. And that drives them to find other resources within that resource. Yeah, that's great. You know, one of the things I think people don't really, until they kind of get into it, the idea of a dedicated architectural support staff, people that can answer questions, that is my favorite thing when I'm working on projects. When I have a question that I actually, once I reach a dead end or I just can't figure out what I need, to be able to talk to somebody who can get me answers, that is literally my favorite thing. And I choose half the products I use based on the support that they are able to provide. So that's awesome. Yeah, that is a great benefit. So the resource like the architect order, what are other benefits of that resource to professionals? So when you're trying to specify something such as a garage door or sectional or coiling door, it gets really intricate. So take a coiling door, for instance, it might resemble another product and then how you specify it is really, really important. So all the parts and pieces. I live in Florida, so it's especially important here when you have wind loading and hurricane issues. So all of those resources are also found there. So if you have a code compliance, all the extra parts and pieces that go into it and how to specify those appropriately are all contained in one really simple place. And a lot of times they are going to have multiple types of doors on the same project. Mm -hmm. So if they're wanting to look for everything in one place or they're needing BIM or CAD or anything like that, it's just centrally located in one place. I think it's really beneficial to streamline the whole process and simplify it as much as possible. Sure. But that being said, it's still helpful to have other resources like technical support, regional people too, to help them because once they get digging into it, sometimes external uses are beneficial as well. Talking to a rep, especially when it's code driven. Sure. And the Architect Portal is actually a resource that the Clopay Corporation put together, but it covers everything that Clopay, Cornell, and Cookson has available. So it's both the commercial and the residential garage doors, but for all three of those companies, right? Yes. Yeah, so Cornell, Cookson, and Clopay, that is correct. It'll have all the resources for all three located in one place. Yeah, that makes it so easy to find what you're looking for, whether it has to do with wind load or fire resistance. We're actually doing a project in my office right now, and we're looking for a very specific type of garage door opener. And we want the motor that opens it to go into a very specific location for like the design parameters that we have. And being able to go to track down all the clearances associated with that piece of equipment is crucial. And being able to find it, that's what this site's to help me with, right? That's what makes it so great. Wow. That's nice. It's like a one-stop shop to get everything. And then if it's not there, it'll point you in the right direction. Or if you need some help, it'll point you to the right person. Yeah, it has like a little help button. Okay, I'm stuck. So I need more help. And then you'll have a person that's live and interactive with you to actually help assist that and write the specifications for you, do the drawings for you if you need that. Well, that's wonderful. So for everyone listening, visit architectdoorhelp.com to take advantage of the Clopay Corporation Architect Portal a simple all-in-one resource to streamline the specification of all Clopay, Cornell, and Cookson sectional or rolling garage doors for residential or commercial applications. Megan, thanks for taking time out of your day to chat with us about the Architect Portal. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right, so let's move on. We rabbit-holed that. I think it was worth it, but 
Let's move into the second section of our notes, which is what happens during design development. Based on the financial conversation, maybe it should be, what happened <laughs> during design yeah, development? Sure. Yeah. So for me, like I said, this represents how I was taught. Design development is when the project goes vertical and starts to exist in three dimensions. So in schematic design, we're working through programming and room size and adjacency and all that kind of good stuff. But we start developing elevations and interior elevations during design development. This is when cabinet drawings start showing up. This is when we start talking about interior and exterior finishes options and plumbing fixtures and sinks. And this is the phase that all owners love the most because their house starts to look like a house and not like a diagram. Sure. And so all the things that I just got through rattling off are the things that help explain the aesthetic of the project. You can tell, all right, you have a sink. Mm -hmm. We might say, here's the sink we think you should use. That's part of the design development processes. We put together a palette of materials, both interior and exterior, and we put together plumbing fixtures and all that kind of good stuff. But this is also the phase where we actively start the process of getting the project into Revit or whatever drafting software I might normally use. Software, sure. That's not to say that we're not already working in our CAD software before this point, but and this part's been a bit of an experiment since I started a residential studio at Boca Pal. But in the past, almost all the information I just prattled off, particularly elevations, was presented and discussed using 2D CAD-generated drawings. And we did not do a lot of 3D modeling. Like, I would do SketchUp on a lot of my projects, but that would show, like, exterior stuff. I didn't spend exorbitant hours doing interior modeling oh, that yeah, would then yeah. take into Enscape and make it photorealistic and I'm putting art on the walls. I got you. Sure. We didn't do that. Yeah. And we didn't do it because it takes a ton of time. It's crazy. One of the benefits of having a big firm like where I'm at now, I have people that are wizards at this stuff. We present a ton of information. Like I might show you other than like material selections, even though we'll try to articulate those in the model. All the design studies that we've done to this point, especially the three-dimensional ones, the ones that show building massing, are done using SketchUp and Enscape. I mean, they're seeing photorealistic renderings of what things look like. Mm -hmm. And that's not, maybe other people are doing that now. I, maybe I'm just dating myself because at the other firms, we didn't do that sort of thing. Not to that level. I'm sure now everybody does it. But yeah. I mean, we were, that's the kind of stuff we were doing in my office for a long time, though. Yeah, but would you like go, ooh, here's a photorealistic rendering of your copy room. Like, of course you wouldn't. Well, not your copy room, no, but exteriors and interiors for sure. Well, copy rooms are in the interior. Well, not the, no, not the copy room. You're like, here's the money space, right? That sort of thing. Most major space. Look, I mean, classrooms, lobbies, offices, whatever, but not copy rooms. Yeah, you'll have to drag one of those out. Let's stick one of yours up against one of ours. That's fine. And, and see how that looks. You know, because the guy I have doing it, and at times I go, this is too much. Like, this is just, it's crazy. This is too much. Yeah. He's like building records on the shelf. Oh, good Lord. Yeah, that's too much. Like, he's curating what's on the shelves. I mean, it's like art. And then <laughs> you should hear some of the meetings we have. He'll put some on there and I go, uh, they don't strike me as that, uh, like a, that kind of thing. Let's. <laughs> yeah, they don't seem like ACDC fans. We must have to change that album. I was going to say, let's put a Jackson Pollock on this wall. You know, there's like, that's the kind of conversations that we have yeah. at times. Norman Rockwell instead of the Jack and Paul. That's right. They're not Saturday night carving the turkey kind of thing. 
So they get really, really elaborate and they take a lot of time. And if I didn't have like a small army of highly skilled computer render ninjas, I'm not so sure that this is a viable delivery method for everybody. Yeah. Like not at this level, but we build it in Revit throughout this process because we don't want creep to fall in. Like at some point you don't show a five and seven inch wall as a generic six inch wall or a 12 foot wall instead of a nine and three quarter. You actually start to go, well, this is going to be a masonry wall. It's going to be a veneer wall. It's going to be out of this or sure. You want it to be right. Mm -hmm. So we start putting that stuff in, but then what'll happen and this will be interesting. I already did it on my last project. I want them to start blocking out elevations because, you know, part of my goal in running this studio is I get young people. And so I have to teach them how to do stuff and how to think through things. And, and there's a big difference between people who goes, I know how to design a house. I've lived in one my whole life. Other than being a humble brag, I want to go, well, okay, let's talk about this kitchen. I'll ask them questions like, where's the wax paper going to go? Where's the gravy boat? for Thanksgiving. Like if you, yeah, these things exist, they're real things. And I'm telling you, I've sat in enough meetings to where people will ask those sort. I have serving trades. Oh, like clients will ask where this goes. Yeah. 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 Like all this stuff that everyone goes like, Oh, I'm going to put my plate storage conveniently located next to my dishwasher. Okay, great. That's low hanging fruit. Everyone should know that. But where's the serving platters going to go? Do they have silver? Do I need to do a fault line drawer? Is it going to be here? Are we creating a servery somewhere? Is it going to go in the dining room? Like, I just start carpet bombing them with <laughs> questions that we would get you're like, if you're the yeah, client. You think you know about a house. How about this, 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 yeah. this, this? Yeah. Yes. Or the space between, a lot of times we'll do an island and the sink will be in the island and there'll be a dishwasher immediately adjacent to the sink, mm-hmm. which they don't know why that's like that. And you have to say, well, that's because the food disposal that's part of the dishwasher has to connect to the actual food disposal at the sink. Yeah. So they need to be next to each other. But they won't show enough distance from the island to, say, another counter. They got like one foot eight in there or something. No, 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 no. They don't make that sort of decision. But say they show it at like three foot. And I go, look, when they open this door... How do they get to the, you're going to make them walk around the island or they got to like have really long legs and step over it. It just doesn't work. Yeah. That's part of the thing we have to work through. Sure. So we do start putting everything into Revit at this point to make it real. But then we also start putting together material sample boards. We start looking at everything just gets more real at this mm-hmm. point. We start yeah. talking about, is it brick? Is it stone? Is it siding? Is it painted? Is it natural? Is it all that kind of good stuff? Yeah, this is where it goes from. The form that you've decided on can be now either, heaven forbid, farmhouse modern or, you know, traditional contemporary or whatever. You start to apply all that aesthetic to it and and make it happen. So during that phase of design development, the other thing is it goes from being sketches and loose plans to accurate drawings, accurate elevations, both interior and exterior, finished materials. These are all. Like I said, this is the part that everybody loves the most. They have the most fun. The other thing I think, I'm not sure it really matters, but I'm just going to throw this out there to see if other people go, yeah, that's what happens to me too. A lot of times the clients will say, because this is what they like, they'll say, oh, I don't need help picking out tile or plumbing fixtures or sinks or whatever, because they go, that's going to be fun. I'm going to love doing that. Then they realize it's 8 billion decisions. And after a while, they're like, okay, Yeah, that's too much. I don't have the time for this. So I would say 90% of the time, if not more, 
we end up picking all that stuff out for them to obviously approve. And we don't just say, this is it. Like we give them options. Sure. And then they might give us feedback and we say, all right, yes or no. Well, and I also assume by that point, you've maybe seen enough imagery that they've given you of the things that they like. And so you've got a better feel for, well, this is probably something that they would accept or that they would like. Oh, for sure. It used to be that people would bring in magazines that they have post-it notes all over sure. to show us what they like and what their tastes are and all that kind of good stuff. Now people share Pinterest boards. Pinterest boards, yeah. And what makes that interesting is occasionally the couple have wildly different opinions about what they like and they don't like. Yeah, we talked about that in schematic about how it could be a little bit crazy. Yeah, I'm sure I already said it. I just can't remember what I said months and months ago. But we had a project where somebody goes, I really like this. And then the spouse goes, I hate everything about this photo. <laughs> and that's what, it says. that's what it says in the notes of the section where the file is <laughs> saved. Nice. And I was like, okay, well, let's see if we can't figure out why you like something and why you don't like something. So we can kind of get to where they need to be. That's kind of in a nutshell, the big aspect about what actually happens during, I mean, like your house becomes a house. It's not just a diagram or square footage or checking the box on how many bedrooms and bathrooms it has. Yeah. Can I ask you a question about your process there? Of course. Do you go inside out or outside in, or do you work them both simultaneously? Do you start on the exterior and kind of get that all figured out and then move to the interior, or are you doing them both simultaneously? Okay. That's not an unreasonable question, but... I don't know how younger people do it. So now I do them at the same time. As the designer, when I'm designing it, a lot of that stuff's already have mentally in my brain during schematic design. Sure, sure. So it's not like Tetris where I'm just cutting out rooms that are of a certain size and I just push them together on a piece of paper until I get what I want. I'm already thinking about what the three-dimensional aspects of it are going to be, like roof forms, what roof is going to work where, and what's that going to be. So I'm already working on that. I will say that when they sign off on schematic design, which is basically a plan exercise, it might have some massing to it, but we're not talking materials and finishes and specifics just yet. I might show, hey, we're going to have a window in this wall, but I'm not articulating exactly what the mullion pattern might be or that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. I tell folks that, hey, this is going to slightly change and evolve during design development because as we go vertical with it, we might decide, that some alignment from level one to level two is not what it needs to be. And so we reconfigure things to get the alignment that we're looking for. Mm -hmm. We might have instances, this has to do with when we do modern work. You know, I start thinking about masonry dimensions so that I don't have cut bricks. Yeah, for sure. That's really, I mean, that's in the weeds. That's something that really will be dealt with during construction documents. But I feel like you have to think about some of these things now. And, and we're going to get into this in the next section, but it has to do with like, if you're not thinking about AV layout or ductwork layout and mechanical now, you're going to go, I'm going to spend the time to figure out my brick layout, but I'm not going to keep in mind where ductwork needs to run. So I'm going to end up with fur outs all over the place in this highly refined house. That's amateur, right? You yeah. can't do that. Sure. I mean, my question was actually more related to like materials. Do you start and apply the materials on the exterior and then move to the interior or? Because I would assume that, and maybe this is wrong. In my opinion, there's usually some relationship between those two that kind of work together or should work together in some way, but maybe not. Maybe that's not the approach that you take to that. Okay. So, yeah, I didn't answer that question. <laughs> I know. I mean, you were talking about the design work, but I was specifically asking more about materials, right? Like, 
the finishes and the stuff on the interior versus the exterior. And do you work one of those before the other? Do you let one inform the other? Or are you working both of those simultaneously? That was what I was trying to ask. I tend to let the exterior drive the interior okay. a little bit. Because when we have the aesthetic, so when people come and they say, I want a house, and they start showing us their images or talking about the styles they like, that already starts to inform us on what type of materials might end up being. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to do a Cape Cod and go, well, I'm going to clad it in this siding on the outside without considering how I might bring some of that same materiality to the inside of the house. Sure. That's all part of it. And if somebody was going to say, hey, if you're going to do lime-washed brick on the exterior, I mean, you got to know that that's an aesthetic that's going to manifest itself in certain ways on the interior with how the windows are laid out or what kind of kitchen you're going to get. If you're going to have like glass, it all fits together. If you like that aesthetic on the outside, yeah, I'm going to get pretty close to what your aesthetic taste might be on the inside because they kind of go hand in hand. Yeah, I tend to start with, with the exteriors first, but I don't get that far before we start working all of them. Sure. Okay. I mean, that would be my thing as well. I mean, I, I would work outside in that really makes sense but i would assume the exterior would inform the interior but i don't do a lot of residential work so i didn't know if it was different so well you know sometimes we call it pottery barn well i say we it's me yes <laughs> and i try to indoctrinate people into my way of thinking when it comes to this stuff and so i have this thing called pottery barn design mm-hmm. yeah and everybody when i explain it to them they go oh yeah i see what you're talking about and it it really had to do with the old catalogs that pottery barn used to send out that were like telephone books. They were huge. Yeah. And every single image that they showed was actually quite lovely. It was beautiful. But we had a friend of mine. His wife basically would recreate every room in her house based on an image within the Pottery Barn catalog. And what you got was nine rooms that all looked amazing, but didn't speak to one another. They were not connected in any way whatsoever, other than they came out of the Pottery Barn catalog. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, and they get this sometimes when they do show houses. They'll say, here's a house, and every designer gets like, oh, you're going to do the den, and you're going to do the kitchen. You're going to... You get this room. You get the... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and then, like, you get this... Uncoordinated menagerie of, like, weird stuff. Yeah. Jekyll and Hyde throughout your house sort of thing. And so, we try to avoid that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's a stereotypical knock on architects, and the flip side is on interior designers, is that interior designers might not take the entire whole into consideration, but rather break it down into a series of spaces. Mm -hmm. And then architects have the knock that they come up with one palette and then just cover the whole house with that same palette. Whole thing with it, yeah. Yeah, so every bathroom has like the same palette as every other bathroom, except for maybe they changed from this color tile to the exact same tile, but in a different color, you know? Yeah. That sort of thing? Yeah. Guilty, guilty. There's no shortage of examples of that out there. Yeah, for sure, for sure. So luckily in my office, I have a highly skilled and not a little interior design group that's within the office. I mean, they represent 25% of our staff. So even though I'm used to picking up materials and finishes and plumbing vessels and all that kind of good stuff, there's a certain amount of, I do this all the time, thinking that I, I actually do subscribe to. That if I want some cool tile, just be generic about it. If I want cool tile, they've probably seen more cool tile than I have because they look at cool tile and not cool tile all day, every day. Hmm. I go look when I need cool tile. I go look for it. You know? My question there, though, would be is I would assume most of their background is commercial, and that's a little bit different than residential. In some instances, maybe not in tile, but even in tile, 
definitely, I would say for probably things like plumbing fixtures and that kind of stuff, it's a completely different sort of set of components. Yeah, you're right. We do a lot of housing and multifamily and stuff like oh, that as okay. well. So. All right, yeah. There's a different scale involved. Like there's certain performance requirements that exist. Sure. If you're the developer building 300 units, yeah. you're going to put a sink in there that you think is going to stick around for a while and maybe isn't super high maintenance and fussy from an installation standpoint. Yeah. But they still try, right? Like everybody, they're designers. Sure. They're like, let's sure. do this cool sink. And then the, they go, no, we're no. going to do yeah. this generic oval one. We have to rip out the countertop to even fix it. Yeah. yeah we don't mess that. Okay. So let's get to the next section, which is who is typically involved, which is a four word version of saying consultants, right? <laughs> <laughs> so residential projects have different consultants on them than commercial projects do, typically speaking. And that's not like you have curtain wall designers and we don't. I'm not talking that kind of nonsense. What I'm talking about is, let's pick an easy one, MEP. There's not a commercial job on the, well, I shouldn't say that. Every commercial job that I've worked on, there is an MEP firm that is brought in yeah. to do the documentation on that. There are very few that don't, yes. Yeah. On a residential project, it is rare that I bring in an MEP consultant. Yeah, it's actually probably the inverse percentage, right? Yeah, it's literally almost never. And, and the truth is, is it's not as complicated, number one. Yeah. The electrical is not as challenging. There's a lot of rules that are in place, but they're, I mean, I know them. I know what the rules are for where you need outlets and what spacing they need to be and what considerants are taken into place. So I'll show it from, um, here's where I want my panel. Here's where I want my generator. Here's the layout of all the electrical that I want throughout the house. And that includes lighting. I mean, I'll do that. I designed the lighting. I designed electrical layouts. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to say it's easy because that seems like a reduction to people who do it, but I've done it enough to where I think I do a pretty good job at it. Yeah, it's not easy. I mean, it's a skill, but it's just a skill that you've learned over time because you've done it. Yeah. Mechanical is where it can get tricky. And mm. having done this for a while, there's certain kind of things that you just become aware of. Like rule of thumb on how much tonnage you need per square footage. Yeah. And that can vary from anywhere from 250 square feet per ton to 400 feet per ton. And it has to do with like, how much glass do I have? And how particular are the clients with wanting it to feel like a meat locker in here versus not? And yeah. It's funny. I've been asked to do geothermal maybe five times in my career, mm. and not one time has it seen its way through the value engineering process. Interesting. It's one of those things that the one up in Wyoming that we were looking at right now, he wants it. But over a traditional forced air system, I mean, a knocked out one, it was adding $180,000 to the construction cost. Wow. And it's a redundant system. You still have to have the other. You just don't use it unless you have to. Mm -hmm. I was like, uh, if we're over budget, here's $180,000 savings. And you haven't changed performance at all. Well, there's an argument to be made for why you have. But in terms of yeah. I want it to be this temperature in my house, we've got that covered. And we can save $180,000. That sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But the main consideration where mechanical is concerned is understanding the systems which aren't hard. Oh, like the different types of systems you mean? Is that what you mean? No, no, no. Because we don't do like two pipe systems and you know all that kind of stuff. I just mean understanding like how many blower units and compressors do I want? How do I want to zone my house? Oh, I got you. That sort of thing. Mm. Understanding where I want that control to fall in place, which again, a little experience will get you there. But it's understanding how air distribution works so that when I design this very nice modernist house, 
I don't have fur downs all over the place. Yeah. Like, how do I get the ductwork through my system? And guess what? We don't use bar joists. Yeah. Most of the systems we use use TGIs or something. Yeah. And I, I can't pass trunk lines through my floor space. Yeah. So you, you got to be clever with how you solve that problem. But you better be thinking about it right now because your little nice, clean, modern lines are going to go out the window if you don't think about it and leave it to your design, build, MEP contractor in the field. Yeah. So then, I mean, a couple of questions there. We'll stay with mechanical because that's what we were talking about. So do you size units then? I mean, do you put a unit size on a project? No, no, no. But I'll, I'll roughly know how big that unit needs to be based on the square footage of the area I'm asking that piece of equipment to serve. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's not something you're doing though. You're leaving that no. sub to do that kind of stuff. Yeah. And to size the ducks and those kind of yep. things. Yep. I mean, you have a general idea, but it's not. That's right. That's right. And so what will end up happening is we'll give it to the contractor and then we'll ask, because I'm not doing production housing, that installer will end up taking my drawings and just like with colored pens, mark on what they plan on doing. Yeah. So we can coordinate duct locations, but register and grills. So we'll coordinate all that stuff so that it aligns with other things. Mm-hmm. Architects like to align things. Your point is that you have a general idea of where those things are going to go. And there's a schematic, even if it's a line drawing that says, the duct is running here. Yeah. But someone else is going to say it's this big and it has to do this. Yes. But you know where it's going. Yes. So then my next question would go back to electrical. In some jurisdictions, when it gets over 200 amps to a house, you have to bring on an engineer. Is that correct? That has not been my experience. And that's... Oh, really? Yeah. And I want to go... I've done work in... A lot of places. Six states. I've yeah. never had that. It's never come up. Really? Interesting. Hmm. Yeah. Like, even in even in California, we didn't have that issue. Hmm. You had more than two. You had, what, like 400 amp service or something? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You know, in almost all the houses we do, rare do we have just 200 amps. Just 200. I mean, it happens. Yeah. It happens. But if you're doing a larger house or, you know, we end up dealing with things like, let's say you want a generator. And it may be if it's just single phase, then it's okay. Maybe it's once it goes to, to three phase. Yeah. And most people don't need the flexibility that three phase provides yeah. no. on residential okay. work. Yeah. So you end up getting order that, let's say someone goes, I want to have two charging ports for my cars. Mm-hmm. I quickly can get beyond 200 amps. Better, yeah, real quick. You yeah, know, for sure. And then if they have like detached structures, say they want a workshop or if they have an, a pool house, you know, it has to do with where I'm bringing power in. I have a main panel. I'm going to backfeed a panel somewhere else. Sure. Right. Like, how you. does that work? If they want a generator, we know how to articulate, hey, this is where power's coming in. This is where I want my panel. This is where I want my generator because I sure don't want my generator and my panel on different sides of the house because it's like, go to the panel first, back feed to the generator, yeah, back yeah. to my panel for distribution. Well, I just added a crap ton of money to provide the copper, the line that's going to feed that much juice from A to B back to A. Yeah. But we also use structural engineer on every single project that I do. And that started originally because it's an insurance requirement. Our insurance requires us to use an engineer. So we do. Yeah. For foundations, for sure, I would imagine. Maybe not for framing, but for sure for foundation work. Yeah. Well, we use them for all of it. You know, they're so cost effective. I mean, to do that scope of work, I got a proposal today for somebody who's doing, that's fairly complicated, detached garage that will house seven cars. So it's not little. It's yeah. bigger than like the first three houses I lived yeah, in. Yeah. It's a house for parking yeah. cars. His fee was $3,500. Yeah. It's just, it's not crazy numbers, so it just makes sense to do it. Yeah. So we do it. But I will tell you that more times than not, 
I generally know what the sizes are going to be. I know what my headers are going to be. I know, yeah. I generally know what it is, but I want them to run the calcs. And I want them to say, this is on me. And normally when we use steel, mm-hmm. steel can carry so much more than what mm-hmm. I generally ask it to do. I tend to end up sizing it based on aesthetics and not structural need. Yeah, for sure. Because until I cantilever a house, like I'm going to cantilever these three rooms. 60 feet. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I, it's just, I'm not, I'm not asking for anything bonkers. Yeah. Now, one of the things I thought we should throw in here, just because people may not know, any of those consultants that I've rattled off so far, if we do contract them to provide services, we will contract directly with them. We don't make the owner do that. Mm-hmm. We will not contract with civil or geotechnical engineers. Yeah, I was just about to ask about civil. Mm-mm. We never do that commercially. We don't ever do geotech. That's always third-party stuff, but we contract with civil. But how often do you even use civil engineers? I mean, only if it's a really complicated site, I would imagine. Not too often. Yeah, yeah, not too often. But that just falls into the, we don't contract with them because if they get like the survey messed up, I don't want that on me. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's the same thing with the geotechnical report, which we tend yeah. to every time, every project, certainly every new house we do, we get a soils test. Yeah. And the geotechnical engineer goes out there, they drill it, they evaluate, they tell the structural engineer this is what it is, and he builds his whole structural system based on how that geotechnical engineer interpreted that report. Mm-hmm. If he blows it, I do not want to be the owner of that contract. Yeah. Right? There's too much exposure for me to sign that. Unfortunately, you can still get in trouble for it, but yeah. Well, you can get in trouble for everything. I know. Let's be honest. You can be named to anything, but hopefully. Like going into it, you should just know, do not contract as the yeah. architecture mm-hmm. architect, the geotech. Don't do it. Or the civil, like you say, yeah. Or survey, right? Yeah, survey. Yeah. Mm-mm. Don't mm-hmm. do survey, don't do geotech, and don't do civil. Yeah. Now, on our commercial jobs, we tend to hold civil. That happens. Yeah, I say, I'll do that sometimes because it's required, but yeah. Yeah. On residential, pass. There you go. That alone was worth this whole episode. If you're just starting Liability out. solved. Done. Yes. <laughs> so there's other specialty people out there, but for the most part, I don't bring them in unless I need them. And, and that's not really providing you any kind of benefit. To say, if you need them, go get them, if you have a need for whatever. So the one thing that sort of popped in my head about this was AV consultants. Yeah. Do you ever involve those kind of people? Or does that usually on the owner? Or is it like, they're not really a consultant, you just kind of get some advice? Of course, it all depends on how intricate of a system they want in their house. But sure, is that something that happens later? It's a contractor thing and not an architectural thing. It's a contractor thing. It's a contractor thing. And we will do some oversight and coordination with it. Mm Mm-hmm. But it changes so rapidly that we can't keep up with it. It's a full-time job. Sure. And I will tell you, almost every AV group I've ever worked with in my life will take whatever budget you have and say it's 500% less than what it should be. Yeah. And it's lots of, hey, while we're here, let's go ahead and run cable for these future possibilities. Yeah. It can get out of hand really fast, yeah. for sure. What if you want to um, have this on every wall all at the same time? <laughs> I still remember when people were like, oh, you can use iPads to control all your systems. It's so easy and convenient. And they have these little ports that you can just pop them into the wall and it's awesome. Then all of a sudden, Apple changes their connections. All of those wall ports didn't work. Are defunct. Yeah. 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 It always makes me nervous. So, my other thing about those guys is it's always, we need a four inch conduit for this one, you know, little cable. Want to run like, (laughs) you know, giant things like that. I'm like, okay. That's right. We got to make it easy. All right, the last one, I didn't mention it, and I'm just going to put it on here just so y'all don't come at me for not mentioning it, is landscape architect. 
That's mm. one that we yeah. use with some regularity and they do documentation and they're great. If I can get a landscape architect on my projects, I will 100% use one. It's just, it's sometimes it's hard to convince owners that they need to hire a landscape architect and their fees are not, they're not like structural. They're not cost effective. Mm. You're paying for like, skilled people to do really cool, great stuff. And it's not cheap. And unfortunately, landscaping is a lot of one of those first thing on the chopping block kind of thing. Like they're like, oh, we can solve that year two or three or whatever it is. Yeah. Or we can just hire a landscaper, the installer subcontractor person that puts it in and just have them yeah. do it. I would use one on every project if I could convince the owner to do it. Oh, oh, me too. Me too. But you're right. That's one of the first things on the chopping block, I feel like. Okay. Let's go to the last major category, which is documentation. And considering that we have other documentation in a later episode, like when we move to construction documents. That to documentation? Yeah. Yeah, the documentation show. So this will be a kind of a brief overview, but it has to do with like, so what sort of drawings do you create during design development? Well, we already talked about what we provide as defined in the, in the contract portion, like my version versus the B101 mm-hmm. uh, AIA contract. But... I think it would make sense to discuss the outputs, like the actual drawings of this process and what you would possibly do with them at this phase. So we've already touched on that a little bit, but pricing is first and foremost, kind of a controller of what drawings we do or don't do at this phase. Mm, Yeah, yeah, I got you. If I'm doing elevations, I'm going to do a wall section. I'm going to do a wall section right now in order to design my elevation. You got to figure that stuff out. So we make it a requirement. Mm. I don't do a lot of them, but I do enough to make sure that all my heights are are what they need to be. I don't just like guess at that stuff. But it's also to get the necessary approval and sign off from the clients that we've shown to that in this moment of time, this is approved before we move into the much heavier handed, less communication period of construction documents. It's not that uncommon that when we move into construction documents, we're like, okay, we'll see in a couple, like a month. You can't read them, so I don't know what we need to meet about. (laughs) Other than to say, yeah, I'm going to send you a bill, so we're going to have a meeting so I can show you that we've done work so that you don't go, what am I paying a bill for? I haven't seen anything. Here's all the wall sections and the details and all these things that are coming along. Yeah, wall sections, all that kind of stuff. So we do a fairly extensive design development package, which is really nothing compared to a lot of commercial projects, because now projects are getting priced at the end of DD Mm. far more often than they used to be. Mm -hmm. And so we need good level of documentation so that every bucket of money can at least be accommodated in some form or fashion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's floor plans, there's electrical plans, there's lighting plans, there's typically some wall section or two or three that exists. I'm not detailing cabinetry. But you have cabinet elevations, right? I mean... Yes, we have cabinets drawn. And there'll be something that says, well, it's this material, right? Like it's... Yeah. It's a laminate surface or it's pure oak or cold plated, you know, whatever. (laughs) Pure oak. Yeah. (laughs) We call that solid stock in my world. Uh, I call it pure. No, I'm just joking. (laughs) So drawing packages, I meant to count one up. I want to say the last two projects I've done, and they're wildly different. One was like 4,500 square feet. I bet our DD package was probably around 20-something drawings. Mm, Yeah. And the house that we did that's up north that's around 7,500 square feet was probably around 40 drawings mm-hmm. at the end of DD. Yeah. And again, vast majority of it was for pricing purposes. Mm-hmm. 
we need enough so that the contractor, in good faith, can make some reasonable assumptions about scope, quantity, location, you know, all that kind of good stuff. Yeah. So those are the four main categories that I had on my list. And I'm hard-pressed to come up with another silo of information that I'm hard-pressed to discuss. I mean, that kind of covers it. Yeah, I think so. I can't think of anything that's missing either, really. Well, somebody will tell us. I'm sure. So that means it's time for our closing segment of the show. What's the rank? All right, so clearly this section is all about food. (laughs) Or consumables. I mean, we not food. We did drinks and other things. Yeah, we did drinks. Consumables, yes. Yeah, I've heard from enough people that they definitely have opinions that are specific to food. You know, Andrew and I talked about ranking hair color. We actually did that one, and we decided, and we're not going to share that. (laughs) Because we're going to hurt someone's feelings. We recorded it and then decided we need to record a different one. Yeah, Yeah. a different one, because we thought maybe people would find that offensive. Or we talked about ranking the fingers. (laughs) Which, you know what, but there's really only a couple answers. You're not really going to debate the value of finger two versus number middle finger, you know, whatever. Yeah, yeah. So for this episode, what's the rank? We're going to do top three hot dog toppings. Top three. Okay. Top three. Man. Yeah. Okay. And look, okay, I think we need to discuss, first and foremost, right out of the gate, hot dog to bun ratio. Because in my opinion, you can have too much hot dog flavor in a single bite. I need 50-50 hot dog to bun. What? Yes. I don't want one of these, like, giant, big as my arm hot dogs. Oh, okay. And like a little hot dog pastry. I need to limit the hot dog flavor. To 50-50 bread to hot dog. I'm just trying to think. That doesn't even seem possible. Oh, it is. I mean, I feel like we just go to the grocery store and buy like a normal, even a Nathan's or Oscar Mayer hot dog. An Oscar Mayer Hebrew National. Yeah, it is actually probably, I don't know, 60-40. There's more bun than there is hot dog in most of those bites, in my opinion. So like trying to get a 50-50 to me seems difficult. Uh, Look, it's pretty close. I've done the math. Okay. All right. All right. It's a cross-section thing, because I'll tell you, the Hebrew Nashies... I know. They're longer than the bun. I'll give you that. I'm talking about where the hot dog is, like, disproportionately fat. Okay. Well, I'm like, yeah, I was thinking about cutting a section through it. So, like, Oscar Mayer, Nathan Hot Dog, all those, those are all reasonably wide Mm. hot dogs. All right. What do you want? You want more hot dog? A little bit more. Anyway. Okay. I mean, like, okay, so the... uh, uh, you know, if you eat a bratwurst, that's too much hot dog. Yes. That's too much meat to bun. First off, that's the thing. When I'm saying hot dog, we're not talking about brats. And yeah. we're not talking about like hot links. No, I know. That's a figure. I knew we were talking about hot dogs. Yeah, because also, I'm not eating a brat on a hot dog bun. I'm eating on like a giant roll. Okay. You know? All right. Still hitting. I'm still shooting that 50-50, baby. Okay. Yeah. And we're not also not in a hot dog eating contest where the number one topping is water. No. <laughs> No. <laughs> gross. Yes. I think that's the grossest. Anyway. So look, in my mind, there's really only about six ingredients that are in play here. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. And I got some hot opinions about this. So it's my question. So you got to go. Number three, what's up? <sighs> I know. And I'm just, it's hard for me to, I think I'm going to go with cheese. Cheese, huh? Like shredded cheese. Yes. Okay. All right. I'll eat that on any any kind of hot dog. I think it's a, almost a necessary topping. I don't eat a hot dog without it, really. Okay. I would dispute that a little bit, because depending on the other toppings, mm-hmm. 
it's just, it's not even melted. And I go, there's no point in eating shredded cheese on a hot dog if it's not melted. No, I do all the time. In my mind, it's not even worth putting cheese on a sandwich unless it's melted. <laughs> okay. All right. Yeah. It doesn't add that much flavor. Right. I like cold cheese, so I guess that's just me. All right. So my number three, mm-hmm. red onion. Mm, okay. I mean, it could be white onion if we had to split hairs. I could just say onion. No, you said specifically red onion. Yeah. That would have been my last onion choice, but sure. No. What do you, you like white onion? White onion, boy, it's hit or miss. Sometimes you're like one little teeny corn cob piece of onion. It's like the strongest onion flavor. Yeah. I like red. I like red over white. If I'm eating it raw. I would, I would do yellow. Yellow. Yeah. Like a Vidalia? Like a sweet? No, no, no. No, just a yellow onion. Oh, I like go for the red. So That's fair. That's fair. Then plain, plain red, not like pickled or anything? No, plain red. Okay. All right, so what's your number two? You got cheese as number three. Yeah, I know. Number two would be chili. Yeah, come on. You gotta. You gotta do chili. Sure. And I'm talking chili, not chili sauce or that garbage that's not like actual chili. Real chili. You get some places and it, it's this weird sort of thing that's not chili. So chili yeah all right i will say that it's even more important to not have too much hot dog if you're putting chili on it oh well yeah for sure i'll give you that yeah yeah because you can take a bite of a chili dog and it's like the hot dog flavor is just a little gross (laughs) i I think i've been with you and i've gotten a chili dog and i go it's too hot doggy yes i think you have i know i'm like this is gross and i love hot dogs i don't remember where we were at but yeah I think it was somewhere they were free. We were at something and it was like the... No, no, no. You know where it was? No, we were in Vegas. Remember? It was for one of the K-Biz NAHB shows. Uh Uh-huh. And I think we were in a casino and it was late and we just went in there and I ordered a chili dog at the bar. Okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. You remember? I can't remember what you got, but I regretted it. I had so much regret. Yeah, that's right. You did. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Actually, I remember that. Yeah. Because it was also like really long too. The hot dog was like Ugh. beyond bun length. And yeah, yes, that's right. That's it was right. terrible. And it yeah. was too big. Yeah. And, you know, ugh, it was, everything about it was terrible. <laughs> okay. Number two for me. Yes. Because I'm going to get called out for it. Sweet pickle relish. Mmm. Not dill. Yeah. Mmm. Ah. I like the sweet. <sighs> not the neon green, even though, you know, if it comes that way, I'm not going to get in a fit about it. But I like pickle relish. But you like sweet pickle relish, not dill pickle relish. Most of the time, if you don't make a distinction, it comes as sweet pickle. That's the default. Yeah, okay. Not yeah. for me. That's not even in my top 20. <laughs> yeah, well, clearly not, because you're going cheese chili route. Yeah, well. And when I said there's six, when I said there's six that are acceptable, cheese and chili are two of the six. But they're number five and number six. <laughs> interesting, interesting. Yeah. We should have chose hot dogs, like styles. Then it would be better. What's a hot dog style? Like an American dog, which is like cheese and chili. A Chicago dog, which is like tomatoes and pepper relish and that kind of like. Yeah. Anyway, so number one, I mean, it has to be obvious. It's mustard. Yeah. I mean, come on. Yeah, it has to be. Agree. Yeah. If you said ketchup, punch. You're, you're, a, you're yeah. A, yeah, you're terrible. No. You're a psychopath if you put. Or you're a eight-year-old <laughs> five kid. Five-year-old. Yeah. Yes. No. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, no. So, and if mayonnaise is in your play, oh my god! That, like, no, forget it, forget it. Look, it's already been aired before, but my wife likes mayonnaise on her. I, I cannot. I, oh god, I can't eat that. Yeah. Well, she doesn't like mustard. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I would ketchup is better than <laughs> than mayonnaise. 
I mean, well, oh. mayonnaise. Well, look, mayonnaise is more of an Asian condiment. They use it in ways that we don't. Well, yeah, true. That they're fries in it. Sure. So I would probably put mayonnaise on a hot dog before I put ketchup. No, no, I wouldn't. I take that back. I don't think I could do it. <laughs> I was trying to convince myself. <laughs> no, actually, I would just eat it with nothing. It would be plain yeah. hot dog. It would be meat and bread. That would be it. Before I would do that, I would just. It would be a hard pass. Yeah. I had a hot dog yesterday, as a matter of fact. Uh, you know what it was? I actually that? made a quesadilla and I put the hot dog in it. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, you know what I call it? What? I eat what's in the refrigerator. That's yeah, what exactly. it is. That's yeah, my that's job. I'm like, we got all these leftovers. Uh, I'm going to do this. Yeah. When I make hot dogs at home a lot, I put pico on them. Pico and cheese and mustard. So there's, that's tomatoes, onions, and jalapenos, you know, like pico relish on there. But yeah. I like hot dogs. So I, I don't eat a good hot dog. Yeah, do you have a particular brand that you is your default? Um, those Hebrew Nationals are pretty good. I get those most of the time. Yeah, that's what we go with. We're Hebrew National folks. Yeah, yeah. They got like a a nice kind of a snap to them, but yeah. it's not like too much of a snap. Yeah, it's not too gross. Yeah, I know. Yeah, right? I'm not yeah. too aware of the casing I just bit through. It's not too <laughs> thick of a casing. Yeah, I know. I'm with you. Yeah, that's pretty much that. I mean. H-E-B makes one that's similar, and sometimes I'll get that because my kids like that one. And it's just a plain beef hot dog. Yeah. All right. Okay. Do you put the mustard on the cheese and the chili? Because someone told me that exact hot dog today. And I said, what are your three? He goes, boom, boom, boom. Exact same three you had. And he he puts them all on. Yeah. So if I'm going to do it, there's hot dog bun, and I go, there's chili first, then cheese, then mustard. Where's the hot dog? Well, I mean, the hot dog's at the bottom. Hot dog bun, like normal, blank. And then on top goes chili and then cheese, cheese and, then, and mustard. then mustard. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's what he did. That was his go-to. Mustard's always last. I just, mustard on the chili. I would omit. I would go without. I'd put oh. onions on it. If I was going to do a chili oh, I, dog. I put onions on there too, but I didn't get four. Mm, that's fair. Yeah. Had we had four, it would have been onions. I mean, that's my chili dog. Onions, chili, cheese, mustard. Yeah. My hot dog. Mustard, relish, onion. That's it. Pow. Done. Classic. Standard. Yeah. Reasonable. Although I like a good, like I said, I like a good Chicago dog. You know, tomatoes, a little pepper relish, a little mustard. No, that's good. Pass. I don't want tomatoes. Mm. Like a wedge of tomato on my hot dog. Yeah, it's good. What is that? That's something else. That's like something with a hot dog in it. That's not a hot dog. If somebody goes, can I have a hot dog? Nobody's thinking they're getting wedges of tomatoes on it. I mean, if you're in Chicago, yeah. <laughs> It's on that kind of Kaiser, like, with the little black stuff on it, you know. Oh, hey, can't. Nope, I don't eat those. I hate it. Well, sorry. Yeah, poppy seeds? Yeah. I don't want to be having, picking poppy seeds out of my teeth. I like a lot of different kinds of hot dogs. And I'm okay with big hot dogs to less bun ratio. I'm good with it. Ugh, okay. <laughs> I, think, I think we should wrap it up. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh-huh. So thank you for being with us today for episode 107, Residential Architecture 101, Design Development. Special thanks to our sponsor, Clopay Corporation, the largest manufacturer and marketer of garage doors and rolling steel doors in North America. Visit architectdoorhelp.com to take advantage of the Clopay Corporation Architect Portal, a simple all-in-one resource to streamline the specification of all Clopay, Cornell, Cookson, sectional, or rolling garage doors for residential or commercial applications. 
We would also like to thank our media partners, Building Design and Construction, for their gracious support of Life of an Architect podcast. Want to get every new episode automatically downloaded? Make sure to hit that follow or subscribe button on your podcast player of choice so you can get alerted every time we publish a mind-blowing new episode. And while you're there, please take a few moments and leave us a five-star ketchup is not an acceptable hot dog condiment rating. To get even more content, head over to lifeofanarchitect.com for blog posts, links, and info about this spectacular episode and all the website has to offer. You can even add your own voice and join the conversation. Thanks so much for tuning in. Take it easy, everybody. Cheers.